Hello and welcome to Following the Rules. This is a podcast about the rules shaping UK and EU financial services and the people responsible for understanding and implementing them. Because in one of the world's most regulated sectors, following the rules isn't always easy. I'm your host, financial journalist Lucy McNulty, and every episode I'll be asking the most influential personalities in financial regulation for their input on the sector's most pressing issues. Now, more than ever, our communications are distributed and digitally connected. They are the lifeblood of the enterprise. With Smash, you can leverage all of your communications as a strategic asset. Smash enables companies to transform oversight into foresight by surfacing business critical signals in more than 100 digital communication channels, from email to WhatsApp to Zoom and many more. Regulated organizations of all sizes rely upon the Smash portfolio of cloud-native, AI-enabled digital communications capture, retention, and oversight solutions to help them identify regulatory and reputational risk within their communications data before those risks become fines or headlines. Smash serves a global client base spanning the top banks in North America, Europe, and Asia, along with other leading financial firms and various government agencies. To discover more about the future of communications capture, archiving, and oversight, visit www.smarsh.com. But I'd be extremely surprised if the Labour Party doesn't make an early and dramatic announcement about regulatory alignment with the EU 27. So regulatory alignment across all sectors, which in turn would obviate the need to noodle our way into a customs union because we would be implicitly within trading arrangements. And that would get a pretty good reaction from the markets. Today's guest outlines the three financial services reforms he expects the next government will prioritise. He details where he believes this government has gone wrong in its efforts to establish the UK as a thriving investment hub post-Brexit. And he explains what changes to the financial services sector he believes this government should avoid in order to keep the city as competitive as possible. John McLeod has spent 29 years advising businesses and their bosses on political relations, corporate governments and reputation management. His career includes stints as Head of Public Affairs at lobbying group Brunswick and as Chair of Communications giant Weber Shandwick's UK Corporate Financial and Public Affairs practice and of its Manchester office. Since 2021, he has worked as a partner at the communications consultancy DRD Partnership, where he leads its competition and antitrust practice. Hi, John. Welcome to Following the Rules. Great to be here. Let's start with a brief overview of your role. For those that may not be familiar with you or DRD Partnership, could you explain what it is that you do and who you typically advise? Well, I started life as a political lobbyist in the 90s. DRD is a boutique practice in London, but we operate internationally. We're an independent, five-partner-led business, and we act across four disciplines. We do political relations, litigation, communications, crisis communications, and then the fourth strand is our competition and antitrust practice, which also focuses on national security and investment decision-making. So we deal with everything that's not the law. Our instructions come from three different directions. So the first direction would be from a principal client who is involved in an attempt to get a merger through regulatory clearance or has some other crystallizing event, i.e. changing corporate structure, trade sale, flotation, whatever it is, who needs assistance in addition to the legal advice they're getting. 
The second routine is with our extensive relationship with law firms. So we have very strong relationships with law firms in particular in London and in Brussels. And they may come to us to say that they want some additional assistance in respect of an issue that they're dealing with where they feel that there's some policy or political dimension or national security dimension involved. And the third strand of what we do relates to third parties who want to intervene in a transaction that they find unhelpful to their own organisation or business. So we may intervene by making representations or by generating media coverage or preaching controversy about a particular merger in order to get it ensnared in the workings of the regulatory processes. Okay. It's interesting on that third tranche of business because I don't think it's an area of the mergers and acquisition space that is that widely discussed. How would you summarise the skills that are required to achieve success there? That's a great question. Rule number one is you've really got to align very carefully with the legal team and you've got to have the complete confidence and comfort of the legal team in the approach you're adopting. The second one is understanding the full stakeholder universe, if you like. The interview intervening third parties can really come from any direction and the party's ability to manage the transacting parties is attempting to get clearance for their deal can be assailed pretty much from all sides at the same time. So really understanding who is going to be affected by a transaction in the broadest possible sense. Now, clearly some of this work is done by the regulator, but other third parties can pop up and will pop up if they are made aware of the potential risks of a particular transaction to their interests. So get a really good early grip of what the entire audience group you're addressing for the purposes of the campaign. And then the third golden rule, if you like, is early intervention. It seems almost glib to say it, but the number of times that I'm approached when, quite frankly, it's all a bit late, are much greater than those pre-transaction discussions that take place. In other words, what I do is still seen as the panic button, and that's not the right way around. That's really putting the cart before the horse. A really serious look at non-legal risk, i.e. political risk or reputational risk or threats from third parties, should be baked into all pre-transaction conversations and should be part of the evaluation of where a transaction is likely to end up. Otherwise, you see these really fraught campaigns which drain a lot of confidence from management teams and create scepticism about the capability of a company to lead its forward strategy. Okay, so what's keeping you busy at the moment? So the sorts of things that are coming across our desk at the moment probably break down in a couple of ways. There is, despite 13 years of right of centre governments in the UK, a continuing flow of regulatory reform in financial and professional services. And I'll give two examples. One is the knock-on from the listings review, which was effectively a review which tried to make London a more attractive place to list publicly. And then the second one is in respect of audit reform and governance, which affects not only all public companies, but also an increasing number of large private companies. Now, audit reform and governance, it's extremely important because there is a crisis of confidence in corporate reporting in the UK and reform is desperately needed. And what we didn't see in the recent King's speech was a bill 
to enact the long-standing proposals to improve the oversight of audit and actually to introduce some reforms to company law as well to increase the accountability of statutory directors in respect of financial reporting. So that is a huge space because it affects pretty much any large company and is desperately needed to restore confidence in the UK as a place in which to locate a public or private company of scale. Notwithstanding the absence of primary legislation, non-financial reporting is here to stay. Many of your listeners will know that the International Sustainability Standards Board has recently promulgated a set of benchmarks which will apply in all markets for companies that undertake non-financial reporting. And effectively, if you're a non-exec or a board director who's doing non-financial reporting, you'll probably want to have reference to ISSB standards if you don't want to be sued by activists or activist shareholders further down the track for greenwashing or other forms of misrepresentation in your corporate reporting. So non-financial reporting is absolutely critical. It's just not an add-on anymore. Okay. You've referenced the King's speech, which is where the monarch will appear in Parliament and reads through the list of priorities that the current government intends to focus on over the next session of Parliament. And within that, as you say, there was very little reference to audit reform, and that generally reflects a reduction of the political impetus to the focus on that area. You mentioned the listings review as well. What are clients' views on that review? There's a significant outbreak of status anxiety among listed companies, but also among those providing public company markets, so the stock exchange. And, and there's a deep concern about whether or not London genuinely provides the heterogeneous mix of investable companies that's needed to create meaningful indices for people to lean into. The changes in the listings review, which have attracted particular interest, are, I would say, rather marginal and relate to the emphasis on reporting responsibilities and making it easier to access those markets, so removing some of the the step that you have to go through. They're insufficient in and of themselves because no company that's wanting to go to a public market for the first time or extending its exposure to a public market is going to want to do that without appropriate due diligence. So it's as much for the reassurance of those market entrants that they have to step through regulatory hurdles as it is for the protection of those investors who may come to want to buy shares in companies which are on main markets or secondary markets. So the listings reviewers missed the point about reputation and the role of reputation in markets. And there are three things that need to be considered by this or any future government, should there be a change of government in the United Kingdom in the next 12 months, who knows? But I think the three things are soft power. So how do we project the fact that the UK is a relatively uncorrupt and transparent place to do business? Secondly, the fact that we've got the common law system and the English rule of law. So people like contracts in English law and they like the common law because it provides default common sense positions in respect of commercial disputes and litigation. And then thirdly, we need to be serious about building the infrastructure in our cities in order to deliver a genuinely heterogeneous mix of financial and professional services. So we need a strong square mile. We need Canary Wharf to survive and indeed to thrive. But we need to be serious about our financial centres in Manchester, in Leeds, in Edinburgh, and on, as you can sense, on a pan-UK basis. So we need a geographic strategy to diffuse our financial and professional services enterprises so that they're working throughout the country, which should be increasingly possible. 
So that's a much bigger thing than just tweaking with the rules about when you list. That doesn't really answer the question about reputation. And so we need a much more integral approach to the reputation of our jurisdiction and markets in order to thrive. And to what extent are you discussing your desire for these changes with lawmakers? Have you had conversations with MPs and government? And if so, what has been their reaction to the suggestions that you've made? Yes. What's the reaction? There is an increasing awareness of the need to promote what we've got to offer in terms of financial and professional services. There's great work done by the City of London Corporation, by the Mayor of London, by our embassies internationally, and it's all to the good. But in terms of the policy and regulatory framework that sits within that jazz hands activity, it tends to be rather paltry in terms of its ambition or the scale of its change. It does doesn't give us the boost that we need in order to reproject our critical markets as being something which is an irresistible offer. And the position of the United Kingdom as a non-member of the European Union, where it is looking to assert the primacy of its markets, that has been a concern, as you know, ever since 2016 and will remain the case. We are getting very different treatment from the EU27 that we did previously. We are now much more in competition with other centres which we wouldn't previously have wanted to be in competition with. And that's a change which needs to be grappled with urgently because it's not just about financial and professional services, even though they are critical to our critical exports. But it's also about technology because those sectors interact vitally with technology and are super users of technology. And if we don't have leading edge financial and professional services, we won't have the technology that flows through with that, for example, to automate or deploy generative AI in the deliver of services in a way which is genuinely beneficial to companies and consumers. But I would say the government in the UK, it's bleak in the sense that driving change is entirely contingent on political expediency. I'll give you an example. We've already mentioned that audit regulation was not in the King's speech, even though it's desperately needed to restore trust and confidence in audit. However, there is a bill to regulate the five top leagues of English football, and I declare an interest as an advisor to the Premier League, when arguably English football is far from broke. In fact, it's one of our greatest assets, and it's the biggest exporter of broadcast content in the UK, way above film or television, and it generates generates significant wealth, not only for the owners, but also for the communities through investments in community facilities and employment. So political focus in government is poor. You use the term lawmakers, so thinking about Parliament, the Lords, I'm actually much more optimistic. The House of Lords, even though it's not very democratic, is actually quite a good second chamber, which has got serious-minded individuals taking a close look at how we improve our regulatory settlement. And indeed, one of the House of Lords select committees under Lord Hollick is looking at the interaction between politicians and regulators at the moment. And the same is true of the Commons. In the House of Commons, the Business Committee is a seriously highly regarded committee. Rachel Reeves was its chair for a while, now Shadow Chancellor. And Liam Byrne, who was a minister under the Blair Brown government, is now its new chair. So the work of those committees in Parliament does look in very great detail at these questions and 
while they may not be legislating, they are scrutinising and producing authoritative material to influence the debate, and that material goes to government. But the executive is moribund and is, as I say, hamstrung by political expediency and contingency. I'm not making a party political point, it's just a fact of life, and struggles to make meaningful progress. So I'm optimistic on the one hand regarding parliament, pessimistic on the other regarding government. Okay. What do you make of the recent reshuffle in government and particularly of the change of city minister from Andrew Griffith to Bim Afalami? Well, Andrew Griffith had a career in business at Sky and was muscular in his approach. I'd struggle to find someone to say he was as popular as John Glenn. John Glenn really remains very popular and actually very influential. He was the longest serving city minister, wasn't he? So it was very big shoes to fill in that respect because he had so much knowledge of the sector by the time he left. Yeah, lots of knowledge. And actually, he was just a nice person. Uh, I'm not saying Andrew Griffith is not a nice person, but he's more political, I would argue. Whereas he felt and feel with John Glenn that he's trying to do the right thing. And he takes the politics out of it to the extent possible. And look, he's still playing a role. And all sectors cry out for continuity. So that was really very stable. Had a short period with Griffith, which was fine. He made all the speeches, did all the work, pretty hard working. Obviously, he comes from a business background. And I think that was respected, but he's gone. Bim is an interesting character. He's got a lot to prove. Uh, success in the window available. I don't see it as a charging up of the potency of that role, but I'd be as delighted as anyone listening to this podcast for him to do great things. What do you mean by he's got a lot to prove? Well, we've got to look at the context here. There was no deal for services when we left the European Union. And the political narrative was obsessed with physical goods. And physical goods are important. Agriculture is important. But services is just so important to this country. And for there to be an abject failure of delivery to have a meaningful agreement on services was really very bad indeed and really failed to understand the significance of the sector for the UK economy, just paid no heed to it. And the consequence of that is there's a very big job to do, both in terms of bilateral conversations about whether it's rights of establishment for lawyers or freedom to practice in different markets. There's some quite technical level engagement that still needs to be done far and wide. But also there is a need for significant rolling of the turf in relation to the review of the trade and cooperation agreement, which is coming up. That needs a big, experienced, energetic, diplomatic figure with political scars on their backs to force that one through because the counterparties to these negotiations are countries who I won't say they want to see the UK fail but they certainly want to eat our lunch and I'm sure BIM is lovely but we need to be a lot tougher if we are wanting to evolve as a strong and modern economy in the next 20 years. Okay this comes as the UK's government is rethinking UK financial regulation in the wake of Brexit. In that context are there any opportunities or challenges that you think the government has overlooked in relation to Brexit reform? You've mentioned listings review. Is there anything else you'd like to add there? Well, look, when you talk about regulation and leaving the European Union, I'm just someone who's 
just doesn't accept the idea that regulatory nuance or regulatory arbitrage is a tool that the UK should contemplate using to create commercial advantage. It just doesn't work. We just become a pain in the proverbial backside for anyone seeking to do business with us if we have some nuance in our regulatory arrangements because we're never going to become a deregulated offshore state. We're not going to become a Singapore of the North Atlantic. So those things are not on the agenda. So we're always going to have a regulated environment of some form. So I just didn't buy the idea of regulatory arbitrage. I just felt that it was a hiding to nothing. And in any event, it ignored the realpolitik of the post-financial crash environment for the regulation of financial services, which was an environment of super equivalence that was brought to us by George Osborne and others. In other words, as penance for the nausea of the financial crisis, we introduced provisions for banks to go capital hoarding and we introduced cap bonuses. So actually, the regulatory settlement that we had on leaving the European Union was mostly in its excesses or super equivalents, self-imposed, self-introduced. It wasn't one that was derived from Europe. It was derived from the climate of opinion that prevailed at the time. So it would be ironic if the thing that we do in order to make our markets more attractive on leaving the European Union is to remove things that weren't imposed by the European Union. It just doesn't stack up. So I don't think there are any missed opportunities on the basis that there were no opportunities. When you mention regulatory arbitrage, could you give me an example of what you're thinking of when you say that? Well, the most obvious one would be on the tax and accounting side. So you might, for example, have looser compliance arrangements for tax accounting. You might introduce stronger write-offs in respect of certain forms of investment. You might permit certain types of company structure, which might not otherwise be permitted. You might ease the burden of proof of compliance, for example, which tends to be one of the things that vexes people, you know, the need to have both systems and controls to assure compliance with regulation, but then the capacity to deliver proof of compliance when challenged. So those would be the things that you might say, oh, well, we'll loosen those levers and that will make us more investable and more attractive. But that's not the game we're in. The UK's brand position as a financial and professional services centre is not and should not be one of playing fast and loose because that is exactly what our critics and competitors would want us to do. Those forms of regulatory arbitrage are really unwise and to suggest that they're possible is nuts uh, because it's just not consistent with our brand position. And you mentioned that we left the European Union without a deal for services, but we did recently agree a memorandum of understanding for financial services. This came very late. It was agreed only earlier this year. What do you think of that? Is there any benefit to it being agreed when it was? It's too little too late. Just smoothing out some of the most egregious wrinkles that we were left with after leaving, and it's 2023, is just nonsensical. And the time that we've been in the this sort of regulatory purgatory is time which has an opportunity cost. The cost of not doing anything, of not progressing as a group of professions and service providers is material. It's a loss of the opportunity to make money for the country and for its citizens. Looking forward, what is to be done? If the Labour Party happens to win the general election next year, they won't say this publicly, but I'd be extremely surprised if the Labour Party doesn't make an 
early and dramatic announcement about regulatory alignment with the EU27. So regulatory alignment across all sectors, which in turn would obviate the need to noodle our way into a customs union because we would be implicitly within trading arrangements. And then finally, on the supply side, in the introduction of strategic employment quotas for key sectors to promote immigration, mostly from the EU27. The EU is doing the same thing right now. The EU, even though it's 27 markets, is about to launch a scheme which will promote and make available residency in the EU in critical sectors. So those three things, regulatory alignment, market access as an alternative to customs union and immigration strategic line to economic needs. I'd be surprised if the Labour Party doesn't say something like that soon after the general election. And that would get a pretty good reaction from the markets. In fact, you'd probably overheat the markets slightly if you did it in too excited a fashion. So you probably want to make the announcement quite boring. You've got to remember that one of Keir Starmer's missions is to have the highest growth out of the G7. Now, as a departed member of the European Union, we are really not going to have the biggest growth in the G7. It's actually impossible because no number of trade deals are going to substitute the critical market that is on our doorstep. So you don't have to have a view about whether or not it was right or wrong to leave the European Union. It's irrelevant. The discussion now is how do we grow the economy? And the best way to grow the economy is very close regulatory alignment, market access and immigration into key sectors. Okay. And as you've mentioned, we are approaching a general election in 2024, which Labour is widely predicted to win. You've mentioned that you would expect Labour to announce a a plan to encourage regulatory alignment between the UK and EU under their government. How exactly would you see that working? Because surely the ship has sailed on that front, so to speak. We officially left the EU in early 2021. The UK government has been pursuing a reform agenda in the years since we left the EU. The EU has been also rethinking its post-crisis regulation at the same time. So there is perhaps not this dramatic divergence that was suggested would be possible around the time of the vote, but there has been a slow divergence over the years. So alignment surely is quite difficult to achieve at this point. That's a good question. Firstly, the Edinburgh reforms when you truffle around them are actually rather paltry. They boil down to changes to the regulation of prospectuses, some changes to customer information requirements, some sort of political steerage and direction to the PRA and the FCA on growth and competitiveness. So the first point is actually, as you say, Lucy, the divergence that's been undertaken under the banner of the Edinburgh reforms is rather trivial, rather paltry, not really strategic in character, more about trying to mitigate some of the already apparent downsides. The second point is about loose ends. So we need to be clear that even though we're some time out of the European Union, there is still quite a lot of unfinished business. So for example, the condition of lawyers, whether or not they can establish themselves in EU states, is still under exploration. They can't, frankly, at the moment. So there are things which just have got nowhere and that would create opportunities for some of our most premium 
premium professional services. And then there's unfinished business in other vertical sectors, like the REACH directive governing chemicals, which was the product of more than a decade of a regulatory passage through the European institutions, widely seen as a good, rational, effective, safe and secure framework for the chemicals sector. And we step away from that by leaving the European Union, but haven't really got much of a point of view about what UK reach looks like. And in any event, the idea that it was ever going to be a good plan for us to have a pink sticker on a bottle of sulfuric acid as opposed to a yellow sticker, because that was somehow different, was for the birds. And actually, just a quick return in a key sector to a regulatory environment like REACH could be done fast by an incoming administration and would be good for that sector as a whole. And the sector would think, we've now got a government which is listening to us and isn't afraid of saying it's good for business to align in this way. Okay. You mentioned the Edinburgh reforms. Those were a series of regulatory reforms that the then new government announced late last year. And it's a much fanfare. We are speaking not long after the government's set out a new economic vision. That economic vision announced recently includes a commitment to cut taxes, reduce debt, build domestic sustainable energy, increase public investment in R&D, cut Brussels red tape and sign trade deals, as well as a focus on education too. What are your thoughts on that vision? Well, it all sounded like paradise. We're it only true. There are two fundamental issues, starting on the fiscal side. We have a real hunger for public spending in this country, which is quite right. The issue is tax receipts and borrowing costs move around a lot, which are highly disruptive of the available capacity on the revenue account for public spending. And the result of that is when the government wants to find favour with different constituencies within the electorate, it does two things. It firstly channels money towards popular areas of public spending, cuts on so-called unpopular areas, and also it tries to find ways of reducing certain headline rates of tax. The problem with that is you're not really doing any of the good housekeeping and your analysis ends up relying on additional borrowing. So you bake in your borrowing addiction and the dependency on borrowing becomes fixed within the public spending set. And that's been in the last 24 months. So it's cake and eat it territory in terms of fiscal policy. The other thing we heard about in the autumn statement was how do we secure growth? Now, trying to piece together the shattered remains of our post-departure from the EU trading relations in order just to get us back where we were when we started is all very well, but you're only really trying to backfill what you've lost. And what we've seen is those individual trading relationships tend to be less favourable than what we had before. So the most notable example is the agriculture deal with Australia and New Zealand, where, quite frankly, our friends in Australia and New Zealand could not quite believe their luck. Deals on their own mean nothing. So you could say, Lucy, that I'm rather unpersuaded by what I heard in the autumn statement. OK, you have previously campaigned for Keir Starmer, who's your local MP. Are you still involved with the Labour Party? So I'm a Labour Party member, but I don't speak for the Labour Party. But I'm involved at a local level in the Labour Party as a private citizen. But in truth, my economic views are pretty similar to a lot of those friends of mine who are traditional conservatives. In other words, who believe in broadly well-regulated free market economics with a bit of supply side strategy thrown in. So I don't think it's really material to my perspective on the fact that the current approach is coming from another planet and not one which is going to get us back to where we need to be. 
Okay. And what other regulatory priorities do you think the next government should have? Well, I would expect Labour to take a look at the competition regulatory environment. It's worth remembering that in 98, the Labour Party introduced the Competition Act and aligned UK competition law with the provisions of the Treaty of of Rome. So Labour is interested in competition law and it wants competition law to be much more pragmatic, much more directional, to have more carve-outs, for example, in respect of the environment and so on. So I think that that is much needed. Labour's approach to reforming competition and regulation should have three principal strands. Firstly, the Competition and Markets Authority, while it is independent in its decision-making on individual cases, needs to be much more the subject of political direction. So it needs a brief to grow the economy. This is particularly important because under the digital markets provisions, we've got novel procedures to nominate enterprises as having strategic market status which then leaves them exposed to regulatory intervention before the event. So giving really clear direction to the competition regulator is important. The second reform should relate to so-called carve-outs. So there is already a rather modestly framed carve-out for merger clearance in respect of activities and actually and allegations of anti-competitive activity generally, where there is an environmental objective. So those sorts of carve-outs to deliver certain goals should be encouraged. And people might say, oh, well, you'll make a bit of a Swiss cheese of competition policy. Well, tough. Competition policy is not there to give performative pleasure to economists and competition regulators. It's meant to grow the economy and make it more innovative. And there's not always much evidence of that happening. And then the third thing is there should be more parliamentary accountability of the competition regulator and its decision making. And I would like to see the CMA bound to account for its decision making to the business committee in the House of Commons and actually at each stage of a major competition inquiry above a certain threshold be required to present evidence to that committee and for the parties to be brought into that committee as well. And that happens on an ad hoc basis at the moment, but I think we should see a lot more of that. The increased powers that have come the UK regulators way post Brexit has raised this debate time and time again as to the balance that we need to achieve over the years to come between allowing our regulators to be independent, which is obviously beneficial for the financial services sector's success going forward, but also to allow some more accountability than we have now because they have increased powers and there needs to be a balance achieved there that we haven't yet achieved. Exactly. I agree 100% with what you've just said. And then the one which hasn't really got traction yet is what do we do about this government's lack of appetite to have what you might call Hippocratic regulation of artificial intelligence? Rishi Sunak got close to that, where he set up an AI regulation institute. Actually, what we need to do is capitalise on our common law system to create the principles-based approach to AI regulation with a short Hippocratic bill, which basically spells out that you mustn't do any harm AI, so a simple short number of clauses, and then which directs regulators to adopt those principles into their regulatory environments. And then you produce a transformation, which means that we take advantage of our common law system, but also have regulatory direction, which we don't have at the moment. Europe has got an extraterritorial regulation for AI, which looks like a complete nightmare, actually. And we could be a bit more nimble there while making sure that we stand out in the world. So those would be my things to do. 
Are there any financial services related policies that you think a Labour government should specifically avoid? I would tend to avoid going back to the banks to reform them again. We just need to be careful what we wish for. We do still have a good swathe of listed banks. Clearly, we've got to get NatWest and Lloyds back into private hands. There are reforms which are proposed in respect of some professions like actuaries and so on. I think they should probably be proceeded with. I would just take it steady. If I were an incoming Labour minister on financial services regulation, I would try to be really clear about the pacing of reform, what we're going to bring through when, what's a priority, what to expect, how markets should start to respond. The no surprises rule is of so much benefit to the sector as a whole. Okay. Lastly, and generally, what's one upcoming or current challenge that you believe not enough people are paying attention to? Well, clearly, the efforts of Derby County to escape the clutches of League One and to return to the Championship is the <laughs> issue which should be capturing most. Well, uh, worth a whole podcast, that surely. Yeah, a thing in its own right. No, I would say the need for a supply side strategy in the UK needs to be discussed. In other words, what do we do to drive investment in capital equipment and human capital, i.e. skills, and returning to a vigorous, well thought through industrial strategy, which responds to the needs of each of our critical sectors is desperately needed. And in the past, we had a continuity with Hesseltine, Mandelson and Vince Cable, who were all pretty much on the same page when it came to supply side and vertical industrial strategies. We need to return to that. Labour is talking about it, but it's a lot of work and you really need to pack some concrete behind it to get it to work. Okay, well, there's plenty of action points that you have raised during this podcast. So uh, let's hope that the relevant lawmakers, policymakers, regulators are listening and take notes. But in the meantime, I'd just like to say thank you very much for your time, John. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Lucy. You've been listening to Following the Rules with Lucy McNulty. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe on all the usual channels. It helps other people get to know us too.